This past year has been very hard. And before you say, thank you, Captain Obvious, you just need to know that stating the obvious is one of my main gifts. But it has been a very hard year. It's been a hard year universally. We have lived for over a year in an atmosphere of uncertainty and fear. There's been a global pandemic. Some of you, some of our brothers and sisters have gotten sick from COVID and many of us know of families where someone died or almost died. There's been a lot of isolation and frustration and then mix into that all the political unrest and racial unrest. It's been a very hard year universally. It's been a hard year corporately here at URC. There have been many hard disagreements, more than I remember in many decades here. I think Pastor Jason dealt with that very astutely and wisely last week. And personally, each one of us can fill in the blanks with our own struggles and trials and tests, battles with sin. It's been a hard year. But then every year is a hard year. So where can we go to find help and hope that doesn't over-promise and under-deliver? Where can we go to find help that is solid and sure and lasting? And of course, we know there's many common grace resources that we have, medical, legal, political, psychological, educational, and we should be thankful for those and we should use those. But again, to state the obvious, none of those can save us. They can't go deep enough to change our hearts and transform us and give us an indestructible hope. They just can't fix all the brokenness that we're aware of. And so, we know as believers, we go to the Lord of hosts. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we go to the Lord <clears throat> for help and hope in troubled times. I'd like to invite you now to turn with me <clears throat> to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. <clears throat> There's probably not a week that goes by that I don't refer to this passage in my own life or in counseling. That's one of the beauties of preaching. Every once in a while you can pick your favorite passages. <clears throat> Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. This is God's holy, inerrant, always relevant, totally sufficient, life-changing word. Amen. I'm going to deal with this passage a little differently today. Instead of just going through verse by verse, I'm going to divide it into two parts. First, five reasons to hope in God. And then secondly, more briefly, four ways of seeking help from God. So first of all, from the passage, five reasons to hope in God. Number one, God exalts the humble. This is a common theme in Scripture, not only in Peter. There's that powerful passage in Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then much more briefly in James 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, all of this presupposes that God is sovereign, that he is affectionately and meticulously sovereign over everything. There is nothing good or bad that happens in our lives except that which God either sends or allows. And Peter is implying here by talking about God's mighty hand on us that sometimes he sends or allows hard and heavy things. And when his hand is heavy upon us, we are tempted to resist that heavy hand or to escape it. And in those moments, there is hope, there is great hope in remembering who God really is and what he's really like. What is his deepest heart? Scripture teaches us that although God may lay us low and his hand may be heavy upon us, he loves to lift us up. He delights to exalt those who exalt him by trusting him in their trials. So we could say that the same hand that is heavy upon us in our trials is mighty to lift us up into his presence and glory when we trust him. So that's the first reason we can have hope in God. He delights to exalt the humble. Second reason, God cares for you. He really cares for you. And we can think of this phrase, God cares for you, in two ways, just as we would in English. God cares for you could mean he has great affection for you. He really cares for you. We could also think of it as God cares for you. He takes care of you. He personally supervises every detail of your life for your good. So let me ask you a question. 
Do you think God likes you? We know he loves you, right? But we often interpret that love as kind of vague and impersonal. It's just kind of this general love for us. Does God have affection for you? Does he delight in you? That's really important. <clears throat> Listen to these words <clears throat> from Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings about you. It reminds me of, I used to sing a lot. I wrote a lot of songs. Some of them no one ever hears because they're for my family members. They're just, so a few weeks ago, our daughter, Stephanie, had a baby. And all her babies are girls, and they all, their names all start with A. There's Athena, Anastasia, and now Aurora. And after Stephanie uh, gave birth, she had to go back into the hospital for a few days. So one night, Judy and I were charged, mostly Judy, with taking care of Aurora. So Judy was, this was at night sometime, and she was kind of getting things ready. And so I was just holding Aurora in the living room on the couch. And she's so tiny, I could just hold her right here. And I was just looking at that sweet, pretty little face. And I just started singing this. You are a beautiful baby. You are our beautiful girl. Aurora Lane of Darby fame. You're the sweetest thing in the world. Now, that song is not going to be a big hit. It's not going to make me a dime. Why did I sing it? Why do I sing it every time I hold her? Because my heart was just full of affection. Do you believe God cares for you? He loves you. He delights in you. That he actually sings over you. That will make a difference in your life. But the other way of looking at it is, God cares for you. He takes care of you. We said his sovereignty is not only affectionate, it's meticulous. Jesus says, the hairs on our head <clears throat> are numbered. Now, I have no idea how many hairs are on this head. I just know they're far fewer than they used to be. The Heidelberg Catechism says this same Jesus watches over you so well that not even one of those hairs can fall off in the shower apart from the will of your Heavenly Father. Do you believe that? Sometimes that's really hard to believe because it doesn't feel like God is watching over us and, and taking care of all those things. It feels like everything's going against us. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27, it says, what do you understand by the providence of God? And here's the answer. God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power whereby as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, 
health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Do you believe that? That will give you hope. It's a reason to hope in God. Number three reason. God, according to Peter, is the God of all grace. Now, I, the word grace is my favorite word in the English language. I love grace. What is it? Many of you have heard that short little definition. It's unmerited favor. That's a good definition. Or the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's even better. But I like to think, <clears throat> what, what does grace look like in action? <clears throat> so I think about Jesus. He's coming in to the city of Jericho. And he's, as always, surrounded by a huge crowd. And there's all kinds of commotion. And he looks up in a sycamore tree. And he sees this, this Jewish man who's rather short. His name is Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus is the poster child for sinner in Israel. He's a tax collector. He's a collaborator with the Romans. He collects taxes and he rips off his own countrymen. He's despised. What does Jesus do? He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. That's grace. Jesus invites himself over for lunch in the house of a crook. What kindness, what condescension, what grace. Grace is the father running down the road to embrace his filthy, rebellious, ungrateful son. That's grace. Or grace is me. <clears throat> Several years ago, on a Saturday morning, deciding to write out a general confession of my sin. Not just my sins that week, just in general. I actually have a copy of that sheet right here. and <clears throat> I, I titled it, How Do I Fall Short? I wrote things like, I don't feel love for God or others. I don't want to do God's will. I resist and rebel. I don't do all I should. I'm very self-centered. <clears throat> Here's the worst one. I am a hypocritical Pharisee. I fall pitifully short in loving God and loving my neighbor. <clears throat> this was when I was a Bible teacher and an elder in this church, and it was all true. And you know what? It's still true. So I, I took that sheet of paper and I, I laid it on the bed and I knelt down by the side of the bed and I started to pray through and confess it. <clears throat> this, was not, this was not good. Something amazing happened. I experienced grace. I found myself starting to weep. I'm sure it was weeping because I was so bad, but it was also, I felt totally forgiven. In fact, I felt loved. I felt pampered. And then I started to laugh because it seemed really funny. How could God love somebody like me? And in my mind came this phrase, grace, grace, most beautiful word. And I got up and within 20 minutes I had written a song called Grace, Grace, Most Beautiful Word. It's grace. Sinners come and confess their sin and the Father throws his arms around you. 
But Peter doesn't just say God is the God of grace. He says he's the God of all grace. So why do he add that little word, all? I sat in my office working on this sermon, <clears throat> and I, I was just kind of spinning around in my chair, just kind of, why did he say all? And you know what? I have no idea. <clears throat> I don't know. But at least it suggests that every form, every type, every kind of grace that you have ever experienced, whether big or small, common grace or saving grace, is from your heavenly Father. Paul calls him the Father of mercies. That means the Father begets mercies like humans beget babies. It means he has 10,000 ways of showing grace to you and to me. Consider just this, the Bible. This is a treasure house of grace. All the stories, all the, all the explanations of the Gospels, all the promises of God. I don't even know how many there are, but they're all yes because of Jesus. Or think about the times when the Holy Spirit illuminates you and teaches you a new truth or reminds you of a truth that you already knew or just impresses on your heart the love of God, the love of Christ. That's grace. A thoughtful word or deed from a friend is a gift of grace. A child's drawing that you stick up on the refrigerator. An illustration in a sermon that just pierces through all your defenses and strikes your heart. A life-changing paragraph in a book, a spouse's tender kiss, a grandkid's hug, a hummingbird at your bird feeder, a timely answer to prayer, a project finished, a favorite verse, and on and on and on and on and on. God loves to give grace. He is the God of all grace. And that means, no matter how hard things are today or this year, no matter how lonely you feel, no matter how badly you feel like you've blown it or continue to blow it, no matter how hopeless things seem sometimes, God is the God of all grace, and He will unfailingly give you mercy and grace to help you in time of need. Number four reason. God has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not, not things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now listen to this. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That means one day, beyond all hope, beyond all belief, beyond all your expectations, beyond your wildest and most secret dreams, you're going to see Jesus. C.S. Lewis calls that the face above all worlds. Merely to see is irrevocable joy. And in that instant you see him, you will be completely changed, transformed, and satisfied as you never dreamt. Because you will become as much like the Lord of glory as a redeemed creature can become. You will not just see his glory. That would be more than enough. 
You're going to actually share in his glory. You're actually going to participate in it. A band named Dave Radford says it this way. Because God is infinite, he can be infinitely enjoyed. Jesus Christ is not concerned about running out of ways to keep up with your ever-increasing ability to enjoy him. His character is endlessly deep, unsearchable, and inexhaustible. Imagine the scope of the entire universe, trillions of shining stars, burning brighter than the sun, magnificent constellations, billions of spinning galaxies, all magnificent and vast and colorful and mysterious. And yet, they are finite. Brilliant though they are, they fall utterly short in comparison to the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. His love, grace, kindness, wisdom, power, and mercy each stand as never-ending universes for all your affections to delight in. This implies more than seeing His glory. It implies entering into His glory, being embraced in His glory, appearing with Him in glory. But don't miss that little word, called. God Himself, the God of all grace, has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Whenever that word called is used in the Bible of believers, it's always what theologians call an effectual call. It's, it's bound to happen. That means that when God calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, he's not just inviting you. It's an irresistible and invincible drawing to his glory. God's effectual call to glory ensures the destination of glory. Now, that doesn't mean we're passive. We still must strive to put sin to death and, 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 and pursue righteousness. Paul says, uh, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We still are active, but... The upward call makes the pressing on confident and assured. And then finally, fifth reason to hope in God. After you've suffered a little while, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The whole book of 1 Peter presupposes something that we in America have a hard time coming to grips with. We're going to suffer. If you follow Jesus, you are guaranteed significant suffering. There's going to be hard days. It's going to be hard weeks, months, and yes, even years. If we put 1 Peter 5 together with 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us some important things to remember about suffering in the life of a Christian. I'm going to read just a few, couple of verses from 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These have come so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does Peter tell us about suffering? He tells us it's now, but not then. 
He tells us it's a little while. It's not forever. He tells us that our, our sufferings are grievous. That means heavy. They're not insignificant. Tells us that they're necessary. They're not random or meaningless. And he tells us that they are meant to test and prove our faith genuine so that we can share in the praise and glory and honor of Christ. But his main point in chapter 5 is, after this brief, necessary, faith-proving, glory-producing suffering, God will restore you. And that word means like mend, put back together everything that's broken. There's so many things that are broken right now. And in a year like this, it's just obvious. There's nothing men can do or women can do to fix all the brokenness. But God will mend all that is broken and he will, he will, um, he will make complete everything that's been lacking or deficient. And then he used three uses three words that mean almost the same thing. He will confirm and strengthen and establish you. And that means he's going to make us strong and stable and steadfast forever. Partially now and then fully when we see Jesus. Jesus himself says, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Now, more briefly, those are five reasons to hope. What are four ways we can seek help in troubled times? And they're going to go right along with the others. So number one, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. Sufferings and trials often bring out of us stuff that we didn't know it was there. It often brings out a hidden and perverse and pervasive pride that we didn't know we were, we were like. And it might sound like, I'm trying so hard, this just isn't fair. That's pride. I look around and everyone else, they've all got their ducks in a row. Everyone looks so together and happy. Everyone's doing so well. Why is this happening to me? That's pride. I just can't seem to trust anyone, not even God. I'm just going to have to take care of this myself. That's pride. Or, <clears throat> more cleverly, attributed to an unknown ancient saint, Lord, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. Pride is one of the primal sins. It goes right back to the garden, doesn't it? If you eat this, you will be like God. But we don't want to be like God. We want to be God. We want to be omnipotent, omniscient, be able to control everything. But it dishonors God when we do that. And it always makes our problems worse. So when things are hard, by all means, lament. Cry out to God for help. But don't resist or rebel. Humble yourself. And Peter shows us how to do that in verse 7. But you got to notice a grammatical connection here. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Notice, comma, not period. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The NIV translates it as two different sentences. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, period. 
Cast all your anxieties on him, period. Two different ideas. No, that's not what Peter's saying. Peter is saying that the way you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is by casting your anxieties on him. To cast your anxieties on the Lord is humble worship. To hold on to your anxieties and obsessively worry is proud self-sufficiency. So cast all your anxieties on him. Strangely, we all have a perverse inclination to hug our anxieties rather than to heave them, to cling to them rather than to cast them on the Lord. In one of his psalms, David prays, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. We secretly think, my soul clings to my troubles because your right hand has let go of me. So cast them on the Lord. You will honor him and experience his care. Number three, be sober-minded, watchful, and resist the devil in faith. The hardships of the last year just make more obvious what is always true. It is always true that we are in an unseen conflict with an unseen and malicious enemy. Peter calls him a roaring lion. We're in a deadly conflict. And so we need to remember that we're not living out our lives in peacetime, but in wartime. That's why he says, be sober-minded. We need to be ready to fight at all times against him. That's why he says, be watchful. And we're called to fight the good fight in the strength of the Lord by faith. He says, resist the devil. To resist the devil means to take a conscious, intentional stand against his temptations and attacks and to turn away from anyone or anything that would distract you or lead you astray from your devotion to Jesus. And here are some tried and true ways. There's many ways to resist the devil. What did Jesus do when he was in the desert? He quoted scripture, which means he had it memorized. So we, 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 we memorize short scriptures that deal especially with the areas where we're weak. And when we're attacked, when we're tempted, we bring that word and we bring prayer and we talk to the Lord about it. That's one way of resisting the devil. Or we put on Christian music or sing a, a hymn like a mighty fortress is our God as the battle rages. Suffering tends to isolate us. So another way of resisting the devil is call in reinforcements. Pray with others, maybe in your family. Text a friend. People text me all the time to pray for them. Ask others to pray for you and with you. I do that all the time. Do that especially when you feel alone and vulnerable. Or memorize a whole passage that lifts up Jesus and the victory of the Lord. Like Romans 8, 31 through 39. 
Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, so all the hard things of life. What do we say to these things? We say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes through that whole magnificent paragraph. One more thing about being sober-minded, watchful, and resisting the devil. How can we be confident that little old me or you is going to be able to successfully resist the devil? What's our confidence? What's our hope? I think Jesus shows us beautifully at the Last Supper. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him, and he knows that all his disciples are going to fall away, including Peter. And so he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that's plural, meaning all of you disciples, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's three things here that just have a whole world of hope. First of all, like Peter, Jesus knows you intimately. He knows your strengths and weaknesses. He knows what's going to happen to you. He knows in detail what you're dealing with today. He knows you. Secondly, he prays for you just like he did for Peter. Says it in Hebrews 7, says it in Romans 8, that Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for you. And what is he praying? He's praying that your faith may not fail. And that's why Jesus says, when you have turned back, not if, strengthen your brothers. And that's the third thing he does with Peter. He commissions him. He says, even though you're going to struggle and even though you're going to fall, it's not the end of the story. You then strengthen your brothers. So Jesus knows you, he prays for you, and he commissions you to serve and strengthen others. On the Calvary way of the cross, for the sake of Christ, count everything loss. The roaring lion seeks to destroy. Resist. He will flee. He can't steal your joy. And then finally, fourth way to um, seek God's help. Praise and worship God who has eternal dominion over all things. That's implied in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But you might be saying, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound right. Isn't praise and worship what you do after God has delivered you? Yes. That is overwhelmingly a pattern in Scripture. But there are psalms and there are, are passages where people praise God in the midst or before the trouble, and then they turn to petition. I counted about 10 psalms like that. And the clearest example to me of this principle of praising and worshiping God as a way of accessing his help is in 2 Chronicles 20. King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, little tiny Judah, surrounded by five hostile nations that form a confederacy to attack Judah. It's hopeless. So here's what Jehoshaphat prays. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a great prayer. I don't know what to do, but I'm looking to you. And then it says, when he had taken counsel with the people, 
He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise Him in holy attire, the worship group, as they went before the army. John, I don't know how you feel about that, but if we had an army here, the worship group would be right at the head. And they were to say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So here's little Judah, King Jehoshaphat, the Levites blowing trumpets, singing and saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love forever at the head of the army going out against five hostile armies. And it says, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Five reasons to hope. Four ways to seek help from God. Humble yourself. Cast all your anxieties on him. Resist the devil in faith. Praise and worship God. All the amazing, creative, and redemptive things that God has ever done in history. All the millions of things he's doing in each one of our lives today. And all the things he will do into eternity future are meant to do two things. One, magnify his glory. Two, increase your joy. And God has woven those two things, his glory and your joy, joy, together. They're inseparable. Worshiping God is the beginning and the middle and the end of all things. It's the beginning because it is what you were created for. It's the middle because it's a most effective way of increasing hope and faith and accessing God's divine help in times of trouble. And it's the end because it's the consummation of all things. It's not only what you were created for, it's what you were redeemed for. Jesus died so that you could worship, so that you could know, enjoy, and praise him forever for the glory of his grace, the faithfulness of his love, the greatness of his power, the awesomeness of his majesty, and the beauty of his character forever. Now, before we close and and sing our final song, I just want to say a word. There are some here in this room, possibly in the fellowship hall, and undoubtedly some who are watching at home, who do not have this kind of hope in God because you don't know Christ. Paul would say you are without God and without hope in the world, which means all you have is your own resources to try to make life work. And life is too big. You won't be able to do it. And someday you'll face the Lord and you will be judged. So the Lord is inviting, he's calling, he is gently commanding you today. Stop thinking that way. Stop trying to do life on your own. Look to his son who lived and died and rose and ascended and is interceding and who will come back. And if you have trusted in him and embraced him, you will appear with him in glory. So I urge you, if you've not If you've not believed in Jesus, do it today. Brothers and sisters, it's been a hard year. But hard years are the best years to hope in God, the best years to seek his help, and the best years to praise his name forever.
Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. So many reasons to hope in you. We've looked at just five today. So many different ways we can access your help. You are with us through the fiercest battles. Oh, Lord, where else would we go than to the Lord of hosts? And Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of Man. You are exalted. Your name is above every name. And one day we will see you and every knee will bow. But we pray, Lord, that it would be willingly and joyfully with praise on our lips. We exalt you, Lord Jesus, that you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory and dominion forever. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.